0: Fallout Food. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a March 28, 2007 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this bi-weekly podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. How would you survive in a post-nuclear apocalyptic world? One Topeka pediatrician had a plan, and it involved eating cans of granulated synthetic protein. In the first half of this podcast, Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I seal ourselves inside a simulated fallout shelter to discuss a Cold War era survival food kit. Later, we'll reveal the connection between CNN news anchor Anderson Cooper and an Emporia, Kansas newspaper man. When we play Six Degrees of William Allen White, but first fallout food
1: good afternoon Merle Riedel
0: good afternoon Nakayla
1: Um, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, last cool things article or the subject of your last cool things article which was the 1960s fallout shelter food kit
0: correct correct and in order to immerse ourselves in the fallout shelter mentality I just want to let the public know that today is day one of two weeks that I have sealed us both in my office (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. And to increase the simulation of the fallout shelter, currently there is roof construction going on at the museum, so you may hear some loud banging noises. Try to think of that as nuclear explosions, because that's how serious we are about our history uh, here at the Kansas Museum of History.
1: This food kit that you read about was um, sold during the Cold War and was intended for use in a fallout shelter. Much like our simulated one today. Um, so, who owned this kit?
0: Um, okay, the kit—it's a cardboard box, basically, with like 14 aluminum cans in them. 14 like pint-sized aluminum cans and one big gallon-sized aluminum can. Um, that it held. Well, it held a food, a form of food. And uh, water and some plastic measuring device and some vitamin C wafers. Um, all this this food kit was actually owned by Doctor Robert Parman. He was a, a pediatrician in the Topeka area. Um, he purchased the kit in 1961, and he purchased it to stock a, a fallout shelter that he constructed in his basement in his Topeka home. Him and his son went out to the local uh, local neighborhood. Uh, local lumberyard, and they brought back um, cement blocks and and wood, and they used civil defense instructions um, about how to basically build your own fallout shelter. And they built their own shelter in the basement. So he he put he then put the three food kits in the basement, one for him, one for his son, and one for his wife. And um, he had that shelter for years, and he held on to the food kit. And within the last years, when he donated it to us, and uh, and I actually got to talk to him a little bit about it. And I asked him, you know, what did you think it was going to be like being in this in this fallout shelter for any period? And he He knew it was it was a grisly concept right to be in a should something happen it was going to be a grisly concept to be in the fallout shelter but also because he was a doctor he was a pediatrician he knew that uh the alternative was even worse and the alternative being radiation sickness
1: okay so what exactly is a fallout shelter
0: a fallout shelter is any enclosed space designed to protect people from debris debris or fallout uh caused by a nuclear explosion Primarily, an important point is a fallout shelter is not the same as a bomb shelter. <laughs> one should know that when building one. Uh, a fallout shelter is basically designed to keep things from falling on you, to keep nuclear fallout from falling on you. A bomb It's not like a bomb shelter because a bomb shelter can absorb blast and it can, can absorb extreme temperatures. A uh, fallout shelter cannot do that.
1: Okay, so you addressed already a little bit what is in the kit. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about the contents and why it's designed to last only two weeks?
0: Right. Well, like I said, there was 14 cans, and those were pint-sized cans um, with servings of water. And then the gallon can held uh, multi-purpose food, or MPF.
1: Multi-purpose food?
0: Right, multi-purpose food, which is a shelf-stable granulated synthetic form of protein. So it's a form of protein that can be manufactured and uh, you take your helping, your daily helping of MPF which looks like sand your daily helping of MPF and you drink it with your daily allotment of water. So And each container lasted two weeks, and that was for one person. So that's why Dr. Parman had one pack, his kid had one pack, and his wife had one pack. Um, And they were also supplemented with vitamin C wafers. Um, Apparently, I don't know, to keep you from getting scurvy or something. So that's basically what's in them. And they lasted two weeks because, according to uh, civil defense authorities who had done tons of research, although they never really qualify exactly how they come up with the number of two weeks, research indicated that after two weeks, the level of radiation had lowered enough Mm -hmm. that you as the individual could emerge from your fallout shelter and forage for food on your own. (laughs) Which, if you can imagine, what a horrific moment that would be. After two weeks of eating granulated MPF sand or M multi MPF to, or sand, <laughs> and then to walk out of your bomb shelter or your fallout shelter to go look for you know irradiated mutated rabbit to snack on,
1: delicious. Either way,
0: that would be that would be a a horrible moment.
1: It may make you turn around and go back into the fallout shelter and hope for some more MPF. Indeed. Okay, so uh, Dr. Parman constructed his fallout shelter according to uh, civil defense instructions. Uh, what other civil defense plans were in store for its speaker residents?
0: Um, well, if you think about it, actually, uh, civil defense was a federal agency, and there was also each state had a department of civil defense, and most cities had a department of civil defense. So you literally had these huge bureaucratic um, departments, each one of them coming up with big plans in, in case... Um, in case the nuclear bombs should start coming in. So each city, even cities like Wichita, Topeka, Kansas City, smaller cities um, like Osage City and and some of the smaller towns, they all had these intricate evacuation plans, citywide evacuation plans. They were going to evacuate Wichita, and they were going to evacuate... <laughs> And they were going to evacuate Kansas City. But it's a little bit ludicrous also when you start looking at these plans because their main routes, they're, it was like I-70. <laughs> you know. So everybody in Topeka was going to get on I-70. And it was really funny because it sort of split it, split it laterally. So everybody on the east side of Topeka was going to go to Kansas City. And everybody on the... Um, on the west side of Peak, was going to, Topeka, was going to go to Salina. Because right? everybody
1: from Kansas City is just going to be sitting there.
0: Right, <laughs> right, right. Kansas City couldn't possibly be a target also. <laughs> but once you start seeing these, you start seeing how these civil, defen- de- civil defense plans were a little, a little bit um, inadequate. And, you know, people at the federal level even recognized that, too. They, there was a whole group, uh, a whole political block that said, you know, you can't counter a uh, nuclear attack, so it's ridiculous to spend tons of money on civil defense. And you can't put everybody in a fallout shelter, so it's ridiculous to try to build huge fallout shelters. They said you're basically going to have to accept the fact that, should something happen, these cities are going to be wiped out. Uh, other fallout plans, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Greenbrier Bar- Hotel in Virginia, which that was the hotel where there was a huge, or there was a big nuclear fallout or nuclear bomb facility built for the Congress, right? That's where Congress was supposed to go. If something should happen, they're heading to this hotel. Well, not to be outdone, the Kansas legislature had the same thing. <laughs> Their theory was they were going to head out west. Um, to Fort Hays State University, which is in Hays, Kansas, in western Kansas. And that was going to be the temporary location of the Kansas legislator, legislature.
1: Okay, so um, we're talking about Kansas towns here, right? And we're center of the nation, and we're, everybody kind of thinks of us as, um, you know, we're the hicks and the sticks type of thing. Right? Did Kansans really need to be that concerned about being the victim of a nuclear attack?
0: Actually, they did, yeah. Um, the primary targets for the... Uh, during the Cold War, the primary targets were the large coastal cities. Initially, in the in the early in the early phases of the new, of the Cold War, the primary targets were the large coastal cities. Right. So to counter that, the Department of Defense they start constructing their missile silos in the interior states, and this had a lot of this had multiple benefits because. Um, because the nuclear facilities being built in the interior states like Nebraska, Kansas, and the Dakotas, that drew the nuclear facilities away from the large urban centers. Um, And they also, these sites became harder to find when you would put them in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest. Um, And then, but the problem is, after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the federal government starts hardening all these sites. I mean, they increase the armoring on the sites, they increase the fortification. So to counter that, what does the Soviet Union do? They, They then designate more of their nuclear arsenal to uh, specific missile silos, right? So it's, because the site is now more fortified, it's going to take more Soviet missiles to destroy it. So what this means is, is not only does Kansas, at the time, not only did they have a disproportionate amount of nuclear facilities in the area, but should something go down, they could expect a disproportionate <laughs> amount of nuclear bombs to be raining down on them. So yeah, there was there was a, a serious... Um, concern also there's a psychological effect to the idea of car- of targeting midwestern states like Kansas in pop culture, it sort of became the worst-case scenario. It was one thing, I think a lot of the coastal cities accepted their fate. Um, they knew that they were going to be a target. They knew they were going to be destroyed. But it really bothered people with the concept of the heartland, of Kansas being damaged and being destroyed. And you know what? The Soviets knew that as well, and they, they often leaked out information that they were targeting the Midwest. And it also got picked up in pol- pop cultures, too. Pop culture, a lot of movies will portray Kansas as the primary target of a nuclear disaster
1: so the day after in Jericho maybe mm. not so far off base, of right
0: I mean it was specifically uh, it was constructed that way Soviets wanted it to be that way I mean it had psychological effect
1: we talked about MPF and how tasty that would be mm-hmm. um, what dishes do you think um, MPF could be used to enhance
0: just to just to let people know on the package um, General Mills who developed uh, multi-purpose food can y'all hear the noise the construction noise <laughs> <laughs> um, You mean
1: nuclear bombs? Right,
0: right. (laughs) Well, um, General Mills developed this, and... um They encouraged you to um, use MPF to supplement other foods, right? So if you're making a turkey, they want you to sprinkle some MPF on it, which is a little ridiculous because why would you eat MPF if you had the turkey? Yeah. But the thing, the theory, really the theory was is that MPF is a little little god-awful, right? (laughs) So they didn't want you to have to eat just spoonfuls of MPF, so they were trying to get you to mix it with regular food. So on that vein, here's some dishes that I thought would be good with MPF. Um, spaghetti. And the reason I think this is because I'm pretty sure I could convince myself that MPF is actually Parmesan cheese. <laughs> I also think apple pie with a nice flaky MPF crust. Mm, would be good. Yeah. And finally, I would mix my MPF with oatmeal because it's not like MPF is gonna make oatmeal taste any worse or mess up the texture anymore.
1: Okay, so which would be a more horrific form of agony? Immediate radiation exposure? Or 14 days of eating nothing but peanut butter and multi purpose food sandwiches while being in a fallout shelter with your family.
0: Well, I think they would be, they would would both be horrible. But I just want to note that if you had a peanut butter and multi purpose food sandwich, that would then be, and correct me if I'm wrong, that would then be an MPF PB sandwich.
1: Or a PB and MPF sandwich. Mm,
0: Sounds good. It's
1: the new PB and (laughs) J.
0: Okay, so we have only got. 13 more days?
1: Yeah. Bring so. on the NPF. <laughs> All
0: right. Thanks, Nikayla. Thank you. And now it's time once again for uh, a game of Six Degrees of William Allen Waite. And joining Nikayla and I uh, to uh, play along is Laura Van Orsdale, curator at the Kansas Museum of History. Um, before we get on to the newest challenge and the resolution of the last challenge, um We're going to read uh, uh, some comments somebody emailed into us. They had a solution for the challenge we posted in episode 23, which was to connect William Allen White to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. We had one path, but this listener emailed with a completely different path, which is also completely acceptable. Laura, you want to read this listener's uh, chain of connection?
2: Sure. Uh, this letter starts, I just found your podcast, and it is great! My family members are longtime residents of Elk County, and so my Kansas roots go deep. Here is how I connect William Allen White to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. William Allen White had Theodore Roosevelt as a house guest. And um, incidentally, Merle, you can actually see this um, the bed where Theodore Roosevelt slept at the William Allen White House. It's a state historic site here in Kansas, as I'm sure you're aware of. Uh-huh. Uh and um, you can visit the house uh, anytime you would like. See our website for more information on that. Now, uh, back to the letter. Theodore Roosevelt met singer Enrico Caruso at a concert in Washington, D.C. in 1906. Enrico Caruso was staying at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco when the San Francisco earthquake hit. Clutching an autographed photo of President Theodore Roosevelt, Caruso made an effort to get out of the city, first by boat and then by train, and vowed never to return to San Francisco. He kept his word. Best regards, Kevin Clark, Cedar Park, Texas.
0: My favorite part about that whole story is the final portion with Enrico Caruso clutching a picture of Teddy Roosevelt as he's running out of a destroyed city. I know.
1: Of all the things you'd say, <laughs> it's your photo of Teddy Roosevelt.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, so on to uh, the solution of last week's challenge, Nikayla. Um, you want to give us that? Oh, I'm sorry. The challenge was to connect CNN news anchor Anderson Cooper to William Alan White. So how's that work?
1: Okay, so Anderson Cooper's dad was Wyatt Emery Cooper. Wyatt Emery Cooper was good friends with the author Dorothy Parker.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Dorothy Parker and Edna Ferber were both members of the Algonquin Round Table in New York City.
0: That was the clue.
1: Uh, right, because right. Uh, Edna Ferber wrote Giant, the book Giant. So she's a giant of the Algonquin Round Table. And Edna Ferber and William Allen White were good friends.
0: Right. William Allen White was actually Edna Ferber's editor. Right. Like he would often review her books before they were published that's right yeah so that was last week's and what is this week's challenge for our listeners
1: this week's challenge is can you connect william allen white to sitting bull and the clue is the only taxidermied participant of the battle of little bighorn
0: so william allen white to sitting bull
1: to sitting bull correct. okay
0: okay so if you have a solution to this uh to this connection just email it to podcasts at kshs.org that is podcasts with an s that concludes episode 25 fallout food come back in two weeks when we begin a five-part series featuring objects from the museum's current exhibit game faces kansans and sports you'll hear about a personal letter written by one kansas track athlete while he competed in the 1936 nazi olympics and we'll examine a drafting table used to design the field houses of the state's two largest rival universities. It all kicks off on April 11th. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society.